Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, you know, recently with what's been going on in our economy and how I've lost about 35% of my investments, the whole Wall Street industry has become a huge press disaster. And we happen to have a real expert on Wall Street. In fact, we're going to be speaking tonight with Bruce Fleet, who is the author of Demystifying Wall Street, Shedding a Little Light on the Bull. This is an insider's view of a callous industry and everything investors need to know to protect themselves. And I read this and I have to tell you that it was pretty scary for me to think about what really goes on in the industry. And there were some really good hints about what to do. So we're going to be talking with Bruce. But let me tell you a little bit about our author. Bruce Fleet is a leading financial advisor in the United States. He is a former Wall Street brokerage top-producing broker for more than 20 years. He's been recognized by the media and been awarded numerous professional distinctions. He is a certified investment management analyst, that's C-I-M-A, and received the Investment Strategist Certificate from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania via the Investment Management Consultants Association. Bruce was also one of Wall Street's top corporate trainers educating new and tenured investment executives for a major worldwide investment brokerage firm. He's currently the managing principal and registered investment advisor of Fleet Capital Management in Colorado. In fact, you can find out more about that at fleetcapitalmanagement.com. Bruce is working on his second book also, which is written to help investors revisit some basic and old truths from the Bible to assist them in making better investment decisions. And you can find out more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. 
and learn more about what he's telling us about in Demystifying Wall Street. Thank you so much for joining us from Colorado tonight. Sure, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Bruce, how did you get to be such an expert? Well, I've been in the business in the industry of Wall Street for over 25 years, and as you mentioned in the introductions, um, I started as an investment advisor at the bottom rung of the ladder and, and worked my way up to senior vice president at UBS. I was also a national trainer, so I got a chance to spend a lot of time with uh, the CEO of a major Wall Street firm. So I, I've really seen it from all angles. So why did you write this book? What, what was your intention? Well, you know, being in the industry that long, I was a lone voice out there in the desert, as they say, crying for more regulation with Wall Street firms. People come to brokers, generally speaking, with 30 years of savings, with a life savings, and this is a pot of money that's critical to these folks. This has to last the rest of their lives, and I felt like the industry was not giving it the degree of significance that it really deserved. So I, I called for more regulation for a number of years. Finally, when I hit a brick wall and no one was listening, I decided to write the book and educate investors, um, try to even the playing field, if you will, and give them some tidbits of information that they could then deal with brokers on um, a surer footing. You know, you have a quote on the back of your book. It says, the problem is that for over 100 years, the financial services industry has gotten away with a fraud acting like advisors, but being actually compensated as salespeople. And this was a quote by Bob Clark, the former editor in chief of Dow Jones Investment Advisors Magazine. So why don't you talk to us about how brokers are rewarded by their firms? Is it for making clients money? You would think that that would be uh, the general principle of it, but it really isn't. Um, brokers are, com are uh, compensated through a mechanism of commissions, and those commissions drive everything in a broker's life. For instance, the type of office that a broker has, the number of assistants that they have working with them, um, the number of trips they take around the world, the, the, the bonuses to their income. Everything is based on incentives, and commissions drive those incentives. And, and it's a shame. It's a shame that it's that way because it really shouldn't be. And it, the, the investing public out there doesn't understand that that's the way the game is played. The final thought on that is in 25 years of being around Wall Street firms, I saw incentives for everything imaginable. I never once saw an incentive for making a client money or protecting their wealth in a downturn like we're experiencing now. Hmm. So how about Wall Street firms? They, don't they have access to the best investments available? Are we being duped by that, too? Most people think that Wall Street brokers do have access to virtually any investment in the United States, and, and some even say in the world, and that's just not true. There are a number of investment managers, managers of mutual funds and, and different types of structures of investments around the United States that choose not to have their investments sold, if you will, um, or offered on a Wall Street platform. Because if they were to do that, then they would have to take money out of the investor's return and pass it on as a commission to the Wall Street firm. So there are some very, very high-quality investments out there that Wall Street firms have absolutely no access to. Hmm. So 
So how do you get access to that? You have to go to the small bro- the small brokers, or what do you do? Well, uh, that's a good question, and I hope we get a chance to talk about the difference between a commissioned broker and a fee-only advisor. But to answer your question specifically, if an investor were to do business with a fee-only advisor, and that's someone who has absolutely no access to commissions whatsoever, then that advisor has access to many of these investments because, again, the management of this, these investments chose not to do a commission-sharing program with Wall Street firms. So there are ways to access these types of investments. You're not going to get them through Wall Street firms. So how does someone know if they're paying the right fee? I mean, is there some place you can find out to know um, how much you should pay for a fee for certain investments? Um, if we talk about mutual funds, which are, are clearly the most widely used investment in the country, and, and rightly so, I, I think there are some tremendous, terrific uh, mutual funds and mutual fund managers out there. Most of those funds have very competitive internal fees, but that doesn't mean that an investor should blindly uh, go after these investments. You, you need to have an advisor that will clearly display what the internal costs are because fees matter. You know, whenever you see fees inside an investment, those fees are ultimately coming out of the rate of return that you, the investor, receive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you you just have to be cautious. Um, I talk a bit about fees in the book. Some another thought on fees is some people believe that if I buy a no-load mutual funds, that I'm getting a low-fee mutual fund, and that's not always the case as well. I wish it were that easy. So you really have to do your homework, but most importantly, you have to have an advisor who is compensated by a flat fee, not a commission, and one that when you're choosing an investment, you'll really go over the different options available to you and weigh the pros and cons. And one of the things to weigh is the internal cost to access that investment. What about asset management? What what about those where you actually put in and you have your advisor takes you into asset management? Um, I think what you're talking about is managed money programs. Right. Okay. Those became very, very popular in the 90s, and they, they continue to be popular. And I'm not sure, and this is another thing we talk about in Demystifying Wall Street. I spoke to a very, very experienced Wall Street manager, a gentleman in New York who manages something like $7 billion. And he managed that inside a mutual fund. And then the brokerage firm said, to this person, you're such a good manager, now we want you to manage on that uh, managed money platform, if you will. Well, the managed money platform had significantly higher fees, and I asked him, I said, why would they, why would they create a program when investors could clearly access you through a mutual fund? And he said, because they can. Wall Street really tells investors what to think and how to think, and they do that because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mutual funds were getting so big and so popular that Wall Street tried to sell the idea that large investors, if you have a lot of money to invest, really you shouldn't be in mutual funds. You should be in these managed money programs, that it was a more exclusive offering. i got to tell you, just like what Wall Street continually does to us, it was smoke and mirrors. It was not a better platform. It was more expensive in many cases than the same investor would have been better off in a good, high-quality, low-cost mutual fund. 
So how do investment firms place pressure on brokers to produce revenue? How do they do that? It's a constant thing. They have pressure on brokers on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis. They have incentives. They have bonuses. They have awards. They have trips that brokers can win. It's it's a shame. It's it's terrible how it's done because the investing public, most most of the folks out there, they view their investment advisor similarly to how they view one of their physicians, and that could not be that. That's how I would like it to be in a fantasy world, but in the real world, it couldn't be further than a truth. From the truth, our physicians never receive a. Uh, a commission. Can can you imagine, Mar, if you went to a doctor and that doctor prescribed a procedure uh, for you to go have, and when you left the office, you weren't sure if that doctor prescribed that procedure because it was the best thing for you and your health, or if it was the best thing for the doctor's pocketbook. I mean, we wouldn't stand for that for a moment. So, um, I one of the things I talk about in demystifying Wall Street is to explain to the investor the difference between a real profession like the medical profession that does not work on commissions and a false profession, if you will, which is the brokerage industry, which is all incentives and and bells and whistles, and and it's a shame. One of my goals in writing this book was to get enough of the investing public aware of what was going on and make them mad. Make them, you know, the the reviews I get that are posted on Amazon and the emails I get from all over the country – People say, Bruce, I read your book, and it actually made me mad because I wondered if this stuff was going on, and now I know it is. So I'd love to have some influence on changing the industry and the way these people are compensated. Well, you are having an influence on me because I'm one of those people that that has a financial advisor that's into all this commission stuff, and I... I do ask to see what are the commissions that everybody's getting, you know? Right, and, right. And I do see it, and it, it seems like it's so very high, but I guess uh, someone like me doesn't know what the standard is. Do you know what I mean? That's I, the I problem. Exactly, yep, I know exactly what you mean. And again, I, I wrote the book, and I'm glad you took the time to read it, and I appreciate that you did that. Um, I wrote the book in a layman's language. You know, sometimes yes. these investment books are written in this investment ease, maybe to prove that the writer is smart. I'm not sure why they do that, but I wrote it in a layman's language, like you and I would be talking as we are now, because I want you to understand, I want you to not just be overwhelmed with the markets and with the the flow of information that's coming out. It's amazing to me how many investors turn over a life savings blindly to someone and say, you know, I don't understand the stock market, so you take care of it for me. Right. Well, that, that and it happens every day. Of course, day. if we trust somebody, we know them for many years, and we've trusted, you know, and then we we trust what they tell us. Yep. Well, I'll give you. Let me give you a perfect example to that. I had a gentleman call me out of the blue about a year ago, and he happened to live in Colorado, which is where I live, and he said, "I have had the same broker for 21 years. It just so happened that it was a Merrill Lynch broker. It really doesn't matter the firm." And he said. I thought this, this person was a good friend of our families. I knew their family. They knew mine. We spent time together. We even took trips together. He said, but when I read your book, he said, everything that you mentioned in the book that could possibly happen had happened. He said, I watched all these things unfold over the last 21 years. 
He just, he, and it made him mad. It, it made him think that he had this trusted person, but when he learned the truth, he couldn't trust as much. And, and, and I want to make sure that I'm clear. I'm not saying that all brokers are bad people. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that the business model in which they exist is a very, very flawed business model, and it needs to be changed. Because a lot of these brokers are well-educated, they're sophisticated, they're caring people, but they can only do what works inside the business model in which they, they live and thrive. And that's what I'm condemning, not the brokers themselves for the most part. Right. So because of this, are there other brokers besides you that are getting fed up and just leaving Wall Street and trying something different? There are. Um, those folks who are leaving the Wall Street firms are becoming what's known as an RIA, and that stands for Registered Investment Advisor. An RIA is someone, generally speaking, who's been in the business a long time, who really knows how to operate in the world of investments, but they don't like the business model of Wall Street firms. So like I did years ago, they've left the Wall Street model, they've created their own smaller firms, and they have completely and totally said, I won't touch a commission with a 10-foot pole. Don't ever tell me about a product of the month again. I participate in real money management. And your question was, are people leaving Wall Street firms? The answer is yes. Not fast enough. Um, we haven't hit that tipping point yet, as Malcolm Gladwell so so craftily wrote in his book, Tipping Point. Um, but it, it's getting more and more. And, and I, I hope that the stream of people leaving Wall Street firms accelerates, because that's the only thing that's going to change the Wall Street business model. And that's really the goal. Well, right now, Wall Street doesn't have a very great name anyway. So leaving them probably would be, I think, something that would increase the, the trust in people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't have a good name. Um, yet, when someone retires and they need to roll over their 401k into an IRA and now they need to manage this pool of money for the first time in their lives, they, they get images from television because these Wall Street firms have literally billions of dollars to spend on advertising and it looks like they can be trusted. So what they do is they go walk into one of the brokerage firms and uh, lay down their hard-earned life, life savings we're talking about here, right. life savings. Right. And because the, the people who are RIAs are generally one- or two-man firms. They're small firms. They don't have a lot of money to advertise. So it is not those firms that the American public is watching on TV. It's not the image of that person. It, in, it is the image of the Merrill Lynch, UBS, Smith Barney, the massive Wall Street firms with the money to spend on the advertising. Right. We're speaking with Bruce Fleet, who is a leading financial advisor in the United States. He's the author of a very interesting book that I just finished reading. It's called Demystifying Wall Street, Shedding a Little Light on the Bull, an insider's view of a callous industry and everything investors need to know to protect themselves. Yeah, I mean, you, you scared the living daylights out of me and made me think I have a lot of changes I have to make in the next few weeks. But tell me, how is this whole industry regulated? It doesn't seem like the regulation is working. It's not. Um, it's not working from the Wall Street regulation, which are called SROs. And that stands, stands for, and this really um, gets the ire up on readers, self-regulatory organizations. Can you imagine an organization with literally trillions and trillions of dollars at their disposal 
and they regulate themselves. Yeah. Well, that, that's how Wall Street firms are regulated right now. But the, the, the negative impression that people, very rightfully so, have on Wall Street firms today is not only the fault of self-regulation. It's the fault of the Congress and deregulation of Wall Street firms over the last 25 years. Um, so there are a lot of the rating agencies. There are a lot of, of hands in this pot. And there are a number of places to place blame. Um, I think that's going to. I think it's hit a head uh, with all of the negative press. And I mean, who of us would have believed a year ago that Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, AIG, and on and on and on that these companies would have Morgan either Stanley. Morgan Stanley would yeah. have either failed or basically been taken over by the U.S. government. We would have laughed at that thought a year ago. Right. And it's pretty terrifying for people when all these things happen because you don't know what's going to happen and what you can trust. That's true. That's yeah. true. How about all the titles um, that people have? You have a title. What, what are all these broker titles? Tell us what they are and what do they all mean? Well, that's also a good question. And like you said, you, you even mentioned that when you read my book, you got a little angry. Here's another uh topic that people generally write me about and get angry. The titles that you see inside brokerage firms, and they can range from, I mean, there are hundreds of them, but they could range from associate to associate vice president to vice president to first vice president to senior vice president, and on and on and on. These titles are part of the illusion. For instance, if you are recommend, if it's recommended to you to go meet with a broker and it's somebody that you don't know, you're trying to find out if you trust them, they have a big corner office, and they are considered a senior vice president, which I was, by the way. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what that means. It means that they make an enormous amount of money for the firm. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're any better at giving investment advice. It doesn't mean that their particular clients have made more money in good years or that they've been able to protect their mm-hmm. money in bad years. It means that they've generated higher amounts of commission, and it means that they've made a lot of money for their firm. So now you can't even trust the title that's on the business card. In addition, there's another aspect of titles on brokerage business cards, which are pay-to-play is what I call them. You, you sign up on the Internet. Um, most of them start with the word certified. Yes, certified financial planner. It could, well, certified financial planner is, is a legitimate title. Okay. That, that one's been around a long time. That one is legitimate. But there are hundreds of them that are not, that you take a test, and it's usually a multiple-choice test. And the funny thing is you can't fail because if you miss a question, it just comes up again at the end of the test. So it is a test you can't fail. You send in your $300 or $3,000 or whatever it is that this particular company charges, and you have a new title to put at the end of your card. Mm-hmm. So, so titles cannot be trusted. There are a few out there that are very legitimate. I, I don't want to disparage all of them. You mentioned one. CFP, Certified Financial Planner, is a relatively good organization, um, not the best, but a good organization. And you mentioned one that I have, which is called Certified Investment Management Analyst. That's from an organization that happens to be based in Denver called the Investment Management Consultants Association. In my opinion, they've done among the best job of these titling companies that really demand um, serious education and a lot of time investment to achieve their certification levels. Hmm. But there's really no licensing? How about the SEC? Do they license you for anything? Well, it's it's the NASD, the National Association of Securities Dealers, that, and it's just a license called a Series 7, 
which you may be aware of. In right. order to legally transact investment business, you have to have a Series 7, but anyone can go get a Series 7. Hmm. You know, every broker in the country has a Series 7, so I'm not sure that lends itself to um, a vote of confidence, whether it's a good broker or a bad broker. It just means that they legally can transact securities business. <laughs> We've talked a lot in, on our show about financial privacy, mm-hmm. and I just wondered how how you how savvy is Wall Street about financial privacy? Well, that's that's one area that I think they've done a, a good job in. Quite frankly, I think that like banks, I think the Wall Street firms have done a very good job, for the most part, in protecting uh, privacy issues of clients. They, they've done a good job. There have been a few breaches of that security. I'm not sure that it has been more or less than any other industry, but I think they've done a, a, a fairly good job in that area, in that aspect. I can't, I can't fault them on that. Right. Yeah, we've had breaches by Ameritrade and John Hancock and right. PNC Financial and and things like that. But like you said, there's been many breaches by not just the financial industry, but the healthcare industry. I just wondered about doing what I've noticed they're doing more of. And that is, um, and I've seen it with my own financial planner and he knows to be real careful with me, but they're, they're doing things where they're doing a lot on the internet um, in terms of showing you how your, uh, mutual funds are going, and they're kind of sharing all this thing on the on the internet. I don't know if you do that, and and how careful everybody is, because a lot of the clients are not privacy savvy to even protect their own computers from spyware that could maybe release this information. That's true. I I think that the making your investment knowledge or your investment account accessible via the internet is common practice. All of the major firms, the smaller firms, the custodian firms like Schwab Institutional and Fidelity and all of them, they're all using online access. And, and once again, that, that's really your area of expertise, not mine. Yeah. But from what I've seen, they've done a very good job at it. Can you imagine, can you, can you imagine if UBS, Smith Barney, then Merrill Lynch, now Bank of America, if they had a massive security breach on that Internet access, uh, people would lose such confidence in those firms. It, it would be a marketing disaster. So my experience, and again, I'm not an expert in that field, is that they have committed vast amounts of resources to protect identity um, issues on the Internet. All right. Well, a friend of mine is a privacy officer for Schwab, so I know that, for example, that company is doing everything they can. But I've, I've actually had victims of identity theft that lost money um, investment money that was transferred. So that's what I worry about. How about the SEC? When they find companies, are there any changes that are made? What happens? Minimal, minimal. Um, you're talking, again, we're talking about um, a castle made of sand. You're talking about an illusion. You're talking about a group of professionals, and I will call them professionals because they are professional and they are sophisticated and they're very intelligent. They are trying to protect this cash cow that they have created, which is Wall Street, with everything that they can employ. Mm -hmm. So when a fine comes down from the Securities and Exchange Commission or from the National Association of Securities Dealers, they uh, dress up, I think it was a Schwab commercial a long time ago that said you can't put lipstick on a pig. They, they, They dress up the paperwork, they dress up 
um, an acknowledgement of the fault, and they just continue doing exactly what they had been doing forever and ever. They, they have this cash cow, which is the naivete of investors and the trillions of dollars that they have at their disposal. They, they don't want anything to hurt that system. Right. And so someone like Christopher Cox, who who actually came from Orange County, who knows, you know, who knows how long he'll be around. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, someone like him uh, is is really preserving the system because these guys get paid probably to do that. The big companies pay them. And that's who are the lobbyists. Absolutely. And most investors, speaking of the, the compensation side of this, most investors have absolutely no idea how much money their broker is making. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you that I made some notes, and I think I put it in Demystifying Wall Street, about kind of average salaries for different folks, different wage earners in the country. For instance, and I, I took this from the U.S. Department of Labor stats, but um, I found that the average teacher in the country makes around $49,000. Now, some, some, some teachers that may be uh, listening to your program may be thinking, well, I don't make anywhere near 49000 Well, that's an average, and it's from the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. And, and the average police officer is making in the high 40000 You know, the average doctor in this country, and this is with 12 years of education and all of the risk that's in front of them, is making about $149,000 a year. Do you know that your average stockbroker is making one seventy-five to a million dollars a year? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yes. It's interesting. I was having dinner in upstate New York one time with Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes fame. Oh, that must have been fun. It, it was wonderful. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of his. I love his sarcastic sense of humor. But yes. he and I were talking over dinner about the whole brokerage industry and about stockbrokers. And he sat back, as Andy Rooney does, and he said, well, what do they do? He, he said they don't build anything or make anything, and he said they make all this money for an opinion that may or may not be correct. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And so on the commission side of the coin, um, what Andy Rooney said was very interesting. He and I had a very lively discussion about that, that they are paid enormous sums of money for an opinion. And if they're right, everyone's pleased. If they're wrong, they still get paid. Right. Now, when you, when you cross the street, so to speak, with the RIA or the fee-only model, those folks and the difference uh, between the commission and the fee-only, those folks, if your account increases in value, which is your objective, then their revenue goes up somewhat. But if your account goes down in value, their revenue, the advisor's revenue, goes down as well. And that more closely aligns the objectives of the advisor and the investor. So there's more motivation to make sure that you do well so that they do well. Absolutely. It's and almost it, like a contingency fee with a lawyer. Exactly. You know, if you if the lawyer does well, then of course you do well. If the lawyer doesn't do well on a contingency, exactly. then you don't do well either. And doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be a better way to have money managed? So are you saying that, uh, for example, the, the fee only is you have a flat fee and then there's an incentive fee, or how does that work? No, I'm saying that the flat fee is the incentive. There are no others. For instance, let's say an advisor is managing an account worth $100,000, and the mm-hmm. advisor is charging 1% on that account. Okay. So now the advisor's revenue on that account is $1,000 right. for the year. 
and these are annual fees. Now, if the advisor is very good at what they do, and they take that account from 100000 to 150000 well, then that you, 1% grows, yes, I that see. That 1% is now $1,500 in revenue to their firm. So right. that is the incentive. The incentive on a fee-only model is to do very well for your clients. And, and But I also want to point out that if the market goes down, their revenue goes down. So now they have an incentive to protect your wealth in difficult times, like this year has been a very difficult time, 2008, right. very difficult for the market. So, mm-hmm. But they have an incentive to protect you along the way down as well. Right, right. We're speaking with Bruce Fleet. He is the author of Demystifying Wall Street, Shedding a Little Light on the Bull, an insider's view of a callous industry and everything investors need to know to protect themselves. So, Bruce, what needs to happen, and how can, how can we make it happen? The only way, the only way change is going to happen with Wall Street is if enough investors learn the truth about the business model, if they learn the truth about the incentives, and if they come to recognize that the investors' um, savings and the investors' investment experience is really not at the top of the list of these Wall Street executives – that's the only way it's going to change. If investors wise up to this, then they're going to move their accounts to RIAs, fee-only advisors. And if enough of that starts to take place, once again, to use Malcolm Gladwell's term of tipping point, we'll hit a tipping point to where the Wall Street executives will understand that they have to change their business model or they're going to lose it. And that's the only way change is going to happen on Wall Street. Now, do you think that change is going to happen by legislation? Is, is that what we're going to need, or is it just a public outcry? I think it, I think it's a public outcry. I think there will be some legislative changes, especially with this new administra- administration, but I don't think they're going to reach down as far as to how these um, advisors are compensated. I, I would be very surprised if we saw that. I do hope we see um, an expansion of regulation for transparency, for the rating agencies, um, things like that, for the types of products that are bought, brought to market. I mean, the, the products that the investment products that really cause the downfall in the economy and the spiral, the negative spiral in, in um, uh, Wall Street and, and the investment firms, these products are unexplainable. They have had MIT. Um, PhDs look at some of these investment products and couldn't explain how they work. They were nothing but um, smoke and mirrors. I had another host of a show this morning call them Ponzi schemes because mm-hmm. that's what it seemed like. So I, I hope some of the transparency gets cleaned up. I think there will be some regulation, but to directly answer your question, the compensation model is not going to change until the public understands that it has to change, and they will force that change. Right, and they will ask for it from their advisors, and if their advisors say no, then they'll look for another place. You bet, and that's exactly what we'd like to see happen. Right. How about insurance? Um, you know, someone might say, okay, you're an, you're an RIA and you have a small investment firm now and, and you have this better fee model, but, you know, how do we know we can trust this little firm? You know, we, we can't even trust the big firms. And people, I think, are very skittish right now. It's ter- that's a terrific question. Um, it's, this is a little bit difficult to explain, but the RIA, the investment advisor, does not hold the investments. That person in their office 
does not hold the investments. They don't hold the money. They actually never touch it. That is all handled by what's known as the custodian. And you mentioned Schwab before. Right, Schwab is my custodian for my investment. Yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Schwab Institutional or Schwab could be the custodian, and that money is well protected. If Schwab ever went out of business, which, you know, we used to say would never happen, but we also said that about Merrill Lynch, so (laughs) I I don't say that anymore. Morgan Stanley. But if, if, if they did, your money is well protected by SIPC, which stands for the Securities Insurance Protection Corporation. And I also read uh, earlier today that um, the Congress is thinking of extending the FDIC to investment firms as well. Really? That would be very good. I think it would be. I I think it is more perception than a a real need, but it couldn't hurt. And I think it's a good perception. I, I would be very, very in favor of that. Right. I guess my question was this, and again, you have to understand my perspective coming from a person who hears about all sorts of fraud and identity theft and privacy right. problems. But, you know, someone may be worried about a small firm that maybe there is a dirty insider there, that because you're a small firm, people who work for you to help you might, you might not do a background check on them or something, and, and maybe they will make some transfers that are not authorized. Is that possible? Well, anything is possible. You, you know that. <laughs> right. um, is it probable? I don't think so. I think, again, when you talk about the banking industry and the investment industry, um, they are very aware that if they had a security breach like that, if money was ever uh, stolen, if you will, that it, would, it could destroy the image of that firm. So I, I think yeah. they take great pains to protect that. I mean, do you have malpractice insurance like we hit, like me as an attorney? I, of course, I have malpractice yes. insurance. Yes. Is that is that something that financial advisors usually get? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, you talked in your book about complaints that uh, investors have and how they're forced into to arbitration. You want to talk a little bit about that because you spoke about that in the book, and I know it's it's really very hard on on investors. Well, when, you, when an investor signs a new account application, there are, there's a voluminous amount of small print on the back. Um, I should say thanks to you lawyers. You guys know how to write long sentences. <laughs> the rest of us don't understand. But, of course, I'm like you. I, I, everything I write, I take the legalese out. That, so, and that's awesome. That, yeah, that's I try and make things transparent just like you do. But, so but I, I of, like that. I do, too. But one of the things that you're signing when you sign that new account form is that if you have a complaint that you will accept arbitration rather than uh, the normal route of the legal system, the court system. Um, They do that. Now, let's think about this for a second. Most people would say, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll go through arbitration. It's probably a fair program. Who puts on the arbitration? Well, it's the self regulatory organizations. Mm-hmm. So it's really the industry that's creating the arbitration panel. Is that, that the just, NASD? Yeah, that yeah. just sounds very mm-hmm. lopsided to me. It sounds like there's an inherent conflict of interest. Yeah, the wolf is minding the, the chickens exactly. or something. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So when I say that I think the regulatory environment for Wall Street firms needs to change, I'm also including the arbitration process. Um, I was named as an arbiter, uh, which, which I didn't participate in because I didn't have a lot of time, but... One of the things I found is that most arbitrations have a panel of three, of which one, and these are the people who are deciding your case, 
of which one is generally an industry professional, but one or two of the others that compose the three of the panel, many of them know less about the investment industry or about investments than you do. Right. So it, it makes it rather frustrating when you're going and trying to plead your, your case. Uh, if you are speaking to uh, a judge, in quotes, but someone who's judging this case, who knows very little about the investment industry or the underlying investments. It makes it a very tedious process. So what kinds of complaints do you see with the, that are filed with the SEC? And well, we, we see some that are very, very legitimate. I mean, there are complaints against brokers that are very legitimate, but I also want to be clear that there are complaints that are not legitimate. And to focus on those first, um, if you see, and I, I put this in the book as well, I showed a pattern of the number of complaints filed with the NASD relative to how the market's doing. Right. And the interesting thing is, when the market is going up and investors are making money, there are very, very few complaints filed. But when the market goes down, like now, and people are losing money because of the market, not because of anything that a broker or an advisor did wrong, um, the number of complaints rises. I would not be surprised at all if 2009 and would, would be a, a very high-volume number of complaints against brokers. Now, some of the brokers should be held accountable and are at fault. But, on the other hand, sometimes it's investors trying to place their investment losses on the shoulders of someone else, and, and that's really not fair. So, you know, it, it's hard to decipher. That's why I put that chart in the book. It's not yeah. always the broker's fault. Sometimes it's the investor's fault. So let's talk about some of the, the really legitimate complaints. Okay. The most common legitimate complaint is a broker placing uh, investments in a client's account that are unsuitable. That is probably the number one complaint in the industry. Right. Um, For that, example, if someone's yep. near to their retirement age and they put something very aggressive, very high risk. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. What, so you would, you would ask, why does that happen? And many times it happens because a less experienced or less, less ethical broker will look for the product. Now, this all goes back to where we started, which was the conflict of interest inherent in commissions. They will find an investment that has a very high commission amount being paid to the broker, and that's the investment that they will place in this client's account, whether it is suitable for the client or not. Mm. Uh, that's the number one complaint that I see. And, and further into the book, I talk about how do you pick the right broker. Well, if you go through the process of choosing the right broker to handle your account, then you are less likely to experience that, that um, lack of suitability. And the reason is, let me give you an example. You may be someone who is a conservative investor, buy and hold, um, you're not looking to hit the ball out of the park, so to speak. You, you just want a consistent rate of return. If, you, if that type of investor were to go find or be referred to a broker who just happened to be a very, very good stock trader, they're not buy and hold, they're short-term traders, and, and maybe they're very qualified at that, that's a mismatch of objectives. Right, and that right. is always going to lead to suitability issues, and it's going to lead to problems, maybe with no one truly at fault, but it's just it's a bad marriage. So you need to be careful when you're finding an advisor to make sure whether you believe that you are sophisticated as an investor or not. You want to find an advisor 
who to a high degree matches your philosophy of how money should be treated and how investments should be made. Right. You did have some questions, on, like I noticed on page 147, some of, of, of your book, and I'll state your book again. It's Demystifying Wall Street, Shedding a Little Light on the Bull, an insider's view of a callous industry and everything investors need to know to protect themselves. But you had some questions here that you should ask your certified financial planner to to at least give you um, some feedback, not just take the financial planner because your neighbor is using that financial planner. Exactly. So let's go over some of the things that you think, like, what should I ask you if, if I were to use you as my certified financial planner and my analyst, what, what should I be asking you? You should first be asking about my philosophy for money. Um, that would be a good starting point of a question. Um, you should be asking things like, do you believe more in buy and hold, or do you believe that a better strategy is short-term trades and trying to take small profits off the table and allow them to add up? Um, you could ask questions like that. You should ask about their philosophy on investment risk. One answer may be, uh, a broker may say or an advisor may say, you know, over the long term, over 30 or 40 years, investment risk in a stock market is mitigated by the time in the stock market. Well, that's an interesting answer, but if you think about it, if you're 60 years old or 70 years old, if you're retired, you may not have a 30-year time frame to your investments. Right. So ask as many questions as you can. Feel comfortable to ask questions. This is your money that you're dealing with, not theirs. And it's just very, very important to, to match a philosophy of investing with your philosophy of your hard-earned money. You know, we're sitting here on the campus at the University of California in Irvine, and we have a lot of students. And, and this is a you know high-quality school, so we have high-quality students that right. go. And uh, we are also in the Newport Beach, Irvine uh, area, in Orange County, California, which is quite affluent. Mm-hmm. So there are people who you know, are going to be thinking about investment. You know, they're, they're going to be thinking about it. But a lot of them are so busy doing what they're doing, whether they're students or whether they're, you know, uh, engineers, or they just don't have time to really understand the market or the whole financial industry. Um, so they may not know what other kinds of questions to ask. I mean, the questions you're talking about are pretty high-quality questions that most people don't even know to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things my financial planner did that I thought was kind of helpful is he actually did a questionnaire for me to see about my worries. You know, do I like the idea of, um, being more conservative or do I want to, you know, go for the gold, (laughs) so to speak, you know? So I think that's another thing is maybe helping your potential clients to even know what they don't even know what to ask. It's a good point. Um, Two thoughts on that. One is, I like the fact that your advisor gave you a questionnaire. And I know a lot of advisors do that. But then the question is, do they take the information you provided and actually implement that as they're creating an investment portfolio for you? Mm -hmm. Because I have seen time and time and time again firms that um, have their advisors have this questionnaire answered, but then it's ignored. It's put into a desk drawer and ignored. Mm -hmm. So if you're asked to fill out a form, fill it out, give your advisor a copy, and make a copy and keep it for yourself in your own investment 
folder and take a look at that from time to time, once or twice a year, and ask yourself, is my portfolio that my advisor helped create, is that really consistent with the answers I gave on that questionnaire? Right. Or ask the advisor, how is what I answered implemented in my profile here? Absolutely. You know, because, because again... This is something that you know so well, mm-hmm. but someone like me, and, and I'm pretty educated, you know, mm-hmm. I have a master's degree and a law degree, so I'm pretty educated, Right. but I don't feel like I'm, I mean, I, I think your book is great, and it really helped me, and I, I'm going to learn more and probably take some classes now, realizing what a ter- terrific dummy I am, but, you know, people, even with all the education that I have, feel overwhelmed by all this stuff, especially when we're seeing what's happening on Wall Street. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a problem. I think that that overwhelmed feeling, and I hear that, and you're right, you are more sophisticated, more educated than most of the investors out there in the country. But what I'm trying to say is whether you have a level of sophistication or not, the industry, the Wall Street industry has created what I'll call an information flow engine. That is so overwhelming. If you turn on CNBC or Fox News and you see the ticker scrolling across the bottom in yes. three different levels, 99% of people will look at that and have no clue what it means. Right. <laughs> and just the sheer fact that they don't know what it means makes them feel overwhelmed. Exactly. Well, if 90, think about this. If 99% of the viewers watching CNBC have no idea why that ticker is on the screen, then why is it on the screen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would suggest to you it's on the screen because they want to create this measure of confusion or this this feeling of inadequacy on the on the part of the investor so that the investor knows they have to go seek professional help and not ask too many questions. You know, it's funny. Um, recently, we passed a federal law called the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act. Mm-hmm. And one of the requirements that had to be implemented by, you know, 2008, by the way, 2008, 2009, was to develop that Congress and the Federal Trade Commission and others were to develop financial education so people would be wise as to such things as, you know, the banking industry, the investment industry, the Congress knows we don't know what the heck's going on. And I think most Congress people don't even know. That's right. Yeah. Well, here's my thought on that. Um, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I I think it's a great idea in theory, but in practice, I don't think it's going to ever happen. And if they truly, if, if the Congress truly had an intention to educate the American people on how to take care of their money, why don't we implement that as a core curriculum in our elementary and middle and high schools? Exactly. That's where it has to start. It does. Because these folks get out of, of high school or college. My son has, happens to be in college in Colorado. They graduate with these wonderful degrees, but there is nothing in their curriculum that teaches them how to manage a checkbook, how to manage credit card use, how to manage debt. Um, how to think about investments. No, in fact, when they get to college, they start getting all these pre-approved offers. Exactly. And then they get into this credit crunch that is overwhelming for them. Right. 
So tell me something. We've seen all these horrible, the demise of, you know, Merrill Lynch and, and Morgan Stanley and Lehman and all that stuff. And right. we're even seeing Citigroup falling apart. And, Absolutely. So, They're holding on by a thread. Right. So why are we seeing all this? It's very clear to me why we're seeing all this. And it's because of the deregulation that happened over the last 20 years. Um, it's also because of the greed of the CEOs that have been running these companies. Again, they've been trying to do everything in their power to protect um, the franchise, if you will, that they've created. And, and, they get, and they get bonuses even when we don't. Oh, even yeah, when everybody, yeah, I mean, that's the huge thing is right. they get huge bonuses when everybody else loses everything. Right. I, I actually put a chart into Mr. Yeah. Wall Street that compares, yes, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, compares the CEO bonuses yes. to how investors did, and there is absolutely no correlation. Yeah, And, and that's a shame. And, and so your now question what are the board? I mean, I don't understand it. What do, the, do the, their, the chairman of the board and their board say about that? Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't in, in their board meeting, but I suspect that when we're dealing with companies of this size, uh, it's the CEO who pulls the strings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why don't you let's talk about some tips to to deal with risk minimization? Okay. Um, the first one is analyze every investment that is being suggested to you, and figure out. And this is not terribly difficult to do, but really just take the time to think through. How does this investment help me achieve my goal, my stated goal of what I'm trying to accomplish with my money? That's the first thing. So if you will match your investments to your objectives, to what you're trying to accomplish, right then and there you're probably going to lower your risk exposure because most people don't have an objective of, I want to double my money in the next year I, you know, because it would be so unrealistic. So make sure the investments in the portfolio match your objectives. Go line by line each one. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are investments, and and we'll use the mutual fund structure as an example, but there are investments out there that clearly the objective of the investment and of the investment management team is to lower the volatility or, or the risk, if you will, of that underlying investment. Have your advisor seek out those investments. Look at Morningstar out of Chicago, which is a really high-quality company that just does investment research. Morningstar.com is a free site, and then, of course, they have some pay additions if you choose to use them. But there are ways that the investor can check out the investments, see how they're rated, and they specifically rate the underlying risk or volatility of the investment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't feel so overwhelmed. Don't get to a point of being overwhelmed. The worst thing you can do as an, as an investor is to walk into an investment advisor and say, I'm overwhelmed, I don't understand this stuff, and turn over the money to them. That, that's <laughs> right. really not prudent at all. Right. No, that's like, okay, here, here's the sucker coming. <laughs> exactly. And it happens every day, all day long. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost mind-boggling how often that happens. Right. What changes do you think are going to occur under the Obama? Yeah. Um, I think a number of changes are going to occur, but before we even get to that, I will say I I'm a, happen to be a student of American history, and I love politics, and I don't remember the last time I've seen a transition between two presidents that has been so tightly knit 
and so efficient in its process as I am between President-elect Obama and President Bush. Uh, I give both of them very, very high marks for how they're handling the transition, and partly it's because of the financial crisis we're in. But right. once uh, President-elect Obama takes office, uh, I'm very, very impressed with the cabinet that he's putting together. And I think Wall Street is very impressed with that cabinet, quite frankly. You can see that um, over the last... Uh, the, the, the days surrounding the time where President-elect Obama was naming his cabinet, the market did very, very well. And so I think what that was saying is that it was the market, the pension plans, the insurance companies, um, the large pools of capital out there saying, we approve. You're putting some very, very smart people onto your cabinet. So with that said, what do I expect? I expect some re-regulation. That's one of the first things I expect. I expect that there will be new laws coming down the pike for transparency into these large uh, mega-corporations like Citicorp and Merrill and UBS and Smith Barney, so that outside regulators, outside auditing firms will have access to see the types of investments they're making so we won't get caught late in the game and look on their balance sheets and see that they have a bunch of junk, uh, which is what took place now. So... I think so. I, there's hope. <laughs> yeah, I think there really is. I, you know, maybe I'm just an optimist, but I, I feel very good. I, I think that the the worst is behind us here in 2008. Um, I think the future is is good, and I would urge people if you're already in the market and you've already taken the losses that we've all experienced in 2008, this would be the absolute worst time to pull your money out of the market. Yeah. If you do that. You have guaranteed yourself you're not going to participate in the upside of this market. Um, if you are someone who is putting money out of every one of your paychecks into a 401k or some other type of retirement plan, don't get, distur- get discouraged. Continue to do that. Continue to put money into the 401k plan. It's funny that, that the investment industry is the only place where people frown from buying when things are on sale. Right. Because right. when things are on sale, that means that the market's gone down. Right. Uh, that's when we should be putting more money into the market because stocks, if you look at different areas of valuation, are cheap. Uh, but it's hard. It's yeah. hard to be a contrarian when it comes to your money. Well, Lloyd says we have to go. You are terrific. Uh, why don't you just give your website and we will uh, have to have you back. Thanks. This was uh, absolutely a joy. But the website for the book is www.brucefleet, and that's F as in Frank, L-E-E-T, BruceFleet.com. The book can be purchased anywhere. You can get it at your local bookstores. You can get it through Amazon.com. Wherever you choose to get the book, I hope you'll read it. And please visit the website because there are newsletters that you can sign up for that are absolutely free to you if you come to the website. Uh, Newsletters go out once or twice a week that, that really don't tell you what to buy or what to sell, but tell you more how to think about the markets. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bruce. We will have you back and have a wonderful year. I hope that we have more transparency, just like you said. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Mari. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week right here from 5 to 6 p.m. every Wednesday. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests and listen to our archived interviews, download podcasts, and write us emails. Thank you so much. Good night. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 